Hello, and welcome to Greetings from Brussels for the 11th episode of our Global Tech Swamp podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and I'm here with Morgan and Anna from our EU team. Hi, Anna. Hey, Alex. Hello, and hi, Morgan. Hello. Hi. All right, so in this episode, we are going back in time to look at the origins of the app economy and analyze how the two largest app stores evolved, innovated, and interacted with each other over time. We're also being joined by friend of the pod, Mike Sachs, app developer and founder of the App Association, to discuss the evolution of the app economy and how online marketplaces can empower the developers of today. But first, we're covering tech history and the top tech headlines in Europe. On April 11, 1936, the German computer pioneer Karl Zusser filed his first patent for the automatic execution of calculation. He invented this process while working on Germany's first computer, the Z1, and in the patent application, Zusser offers the first discussion of a programmable memory using the term combination memory to describe breaking programs down to bit combinations for storage. This is the first device to calculate in binary with translation to decimal. Zuck goes on to build a series of computers, including the world's first programmable computer, the Z3, which became operational in May 1941. Thanks to this machine and its predecessor, Zuzer has often been regarded as the inventor of the modern computer. And that's all for tech history. And now it's time for Brussels Bites. Anand Morgan, what are the latest tech policy headlines out of the EU? Well, this month is all about big tech. The UK just launched what they call a tough new regulator to help make sure tech giants such as Facebook and Google cannot exploit their market dominance to crowd out competition and stifle innovation. A new digital markets unit will oversee plans to give consumers more choice and control over their data, promote competition, and crack down on unfair practices. One of the unit's first tasks is to examine how codes of conduct would work in practice to govern the relationship between digital platforms and small businesses that rely on them to reach their customers. The work of the unit will inform future legislation in this area and is the result of a market study into online platforms conducted by the UK's Competition and Markets Authority. For more information, check out our show notes. Another big piece um, of news this month is Facebook's most recent data leak. EU Justice Commissioner Didier Renders, Luxembourg Prime Minister Xavier Bettel and dozens of other EU officials were all victims of the data leak and found the data circulating in online forums for free. The leak affected over 533 million records around the world, including phone numbers, Facebook IDs, uh, full names, birth dates, and in response, the European Commission reaffirmed the importance of the General Data Protection Regulation for the protection of fundamental rights, and in particular when the data of millions of Europeans is at stake. And of course, regulators will investigate whether Facebook violated privacy rules at the time of the breach, and um, we'll be sure to keep you updated on, on this on future episodes of TechSwamp. And in more privacy news, it's now Google's turn to face a complaint by privacy activist Max Schrems. Schrems, who is known for his campaigns against Facebook, recently filed a complaint against Google in France. The complaint alleges that the U.S. tech giant is illegally tracking users on Android phones without their consent. Android phones generate unique advertising codes, similar to Apple's Identifier for Advertisers, or IDFA. 
that allow Google and third parties to track users' browsing behavior to better target advertisements. According to Schrems, this feature violates EU privacy laws. As a reminder, Apple is also under scrutiny in France following a complaint about asking users for consent to opt into the IDFA. Just as the United Kingdom has begun to ease lockdown measures, Apple and Google have pulled the latest version of the UK's COVID-19 exposure notification from their app stores, citing privacy concerns after the app released a recent update. The updated version of the NHS COVID-19 app added location tracking features that allow users to share their location logs with the health service to track the spread of COVID-19. However, the implementation locations, um, the implementing location services conflicts with the joint Google and Apple Exposure Notification API, which was specifically designed to avoid collecting or sharing personal data about contacts, infections and location. Apple and Google have put these measures into effect to avoid feature creep taking hold in health authority apps. Uh, let this news item uh, serves as a kindly reminder to head to your settings and review what permissions you have already granted to the apps on your phone. And that's all for Brussels Bytes. And now on to app stores. Today, apps are everywhere. They help define how we live, work, and play. Whether we need help finding dinner inspiration, or looking to book a hotel, or need a little extra help monitoring our health, there's an app for that. We rely on apps so much that it's easy to forget that just over a decade ago, smartphones and the apps that live on them did not even exist. It's safe to say that during their comparatively brief existence, app stores have completely revolutionized the digital economy. The thriving app economy we know today is the result of the contributions and innovations of both app developers and platform companies. As policymakers around the world are looking into regulating online ecosystems, we wanted to take a step back and look at what has made the app ecosystem so successful. So to discuss this with us, we have Mike Sachs, app developer and founder of the App Association. Hi, Mike. Hi, Alex. Hi, glad to have you with us. I'm glad to be here. So Mike, you have been a mobile app developer pretty much since app stores were created in 2008. Can you tell us what a developer's experience was like creating software before the app stores? And on top of that, what gaps were the app stores filling in the digital space? Um, and what problems did online marketplaces solve? Yes, um, you know, before the app stores, there was not that much mobile software uh, available. Most software was being written for uh, PCs or Macs, uh, and they were called applications instead of apps. And then when mobile devices you know, became more mainstream, personal computing also became much, much more personal. The kind of data that you store on a mobile device on your phone is, is a lot more personal and private than what you typically use on a PC. You know, your phone has all your contacts. It has your regular browsing history. It has your location that it can keep track of continuously. It has a camera and a microphone. Um, it probably has your health data on some level. It might have your bank information. So all this data is super valuable. And, you know, with PCs, most people would have antivirus software installed to protect them from malware, which was fairly common uh, on PCs. And you wouldn't want any 
of those bad actors to have access to all this personal data. So I think what what uh, you know changed uh, the way people thought about uh, software was that the platforms created this curated environment where you could find apps that were fairly safe to install on your device. You didn't have to worry too much about it, you know, reducing your battery life or slowing down your phone or stealing, you know, really private information. And then the, the second thing that I think the, the platforms really did was to create this place where you could go and find those apps to install on your mobile device. And for example, you know, Apple's, there's an app uh, for that campaign really changed the mindset of people. You know, be before people mostly ran, you know, email and web browsing and texting on their phone, but they didn't really use that much else. And then the there's an app for that campaign kind of made people think that whenever you have a problem, whenever you have an idea, whenever you have a need, whether it's for a recipe or directions or a bank transaction, there is probably an app for that. And so everybody started thinking about apps as, as a place that, or as a resource that they could go to, to, to find uh, a solution for a specific need or problem that they had in their life. And I think the combination of these two things, creating a safe environment, and then really promoting the idea that apps are there to make your life better, that created you know, this enormous app economy that we have today. One thing that is uh, quite stri striking is how app stores continuously innovate uh, to compete with each other for the best platform experience. And um, this in terms of consumer experience, but also as our members, um, app makers know, they also compete for developers um, by introducing different features and toolkits for consumers, they saw this when Apple introduced in-app purchases in 2009, which Google then followed by launching this in 2011. And for developers, most recently, we saw last December with the announcement of Apple's small business program, which is a program that, uh, that reduces fees from 30% to 50% for iOS developers earning less than $1 million per year from the App Store. Google then followed and recently announced it would implement a similar program uh, starting in July 2021. So with that in mind, what kind of environment and what kind of decision have platforms um, made to empower small app makers like our members? Well, going back all the way to the beginning, I think the most impactful decision uh, that Apple really made when they, they created the first App Store was to have a set of App Store guidelines that apply to all app makers, big and small, regardless of their size. Uh, that really allowed small companies to, to compete with really big companies. It would have been a lot easier, maybe a lot more profitable even, uh, for a company like Apple to make a bunch of really special deals with huge uh, media companies and communications companies and banks and everything. Uh, but that model would not have generated the kind of wave of innovation and, and creative flourishing that we've seen with the App Store. Apple correctly realized that the most innovative and creative apps are created by small companies. And that assumption has been proven right. Because if you look at 
the apps that are out there that are really creative, that have changed the way we think about doing things, they're mostly created by, by a lot of small companies that had really great ideas. And the fact that you as a developer can have a great idea and, and build something and offer it to the whole world, that has, that's a great opportunity for you as an app maker, but it also is a great opportunity for that app maker to then meet those thousands of users all over the world who can really appreciate and use that creation. Uh, so I think applying conditions and terms to all app makers alike has been revolutionary and is really underappreciated in the, in the history uh, of online marketplaces. Uh, the second thing I think is equally important for small app makers, which is that the curation created an environment where people trusted companies that they never heard of. They knew that this company was or this app was not going to ruin their user experience or steal their data. And if you are an app maker and you have to compete with a well-known brand, if you're trusted equally, you are playing at a level, level playing field. If for some reason the trust in the app store would start deteriorating, then people will only install apps from really well-known brands. And then very small companies are at a tremendous uh, disadvantage. And then the third thing that I think is really important is that the platforms have continued to evolve and have reacted to different things that have happened, whether it's related to security or business models or uh, any other change in the platform, new, new kinds of apps that have been built. And they, they've adapted and tried to see what makes sense in this moment to see where this might lead. You know, 13 years ago, nobody could have foreseen what kind of an enormous wave of creativity and economic activity the app economy would have generated. But, you know, for example, changing business models, introducing in-app purchases and subscriptions, reacting to problems in the ecosystem where companies were doing things that were not expected, but also not very good for users. For example, there was a company that was selling a kid's app and kids could uh, do an in-app purchase of wheelbarrow, well, wheelbarrows of uh, berries, Smurf berries, and kids would just run up these really big charges because their parents didn't realize how easy it was to make an in-app purchase. Um, that is something that you know Apple then reacted uh, very quickly to to fix. Uh, they they put in parental gates uh, so that app makers uh, who build kids app have uh, a way to involve parents when it uh, includes uh, in-app purchases. They also refunded those parents who got those those big uh, bills of Smurfberries, and and they did everything they could at the time to restore uh, trust in the app store, which you know again benefits the small companies. So constantly changing, updating the business model, updating the guidelines, putting in just-in-time notifications, all those things together really helped continue to to let this ecosystem grow, um, even though, you know, the app store from today is very, very different from what existed 13 years ago. 
So throughout this evolution, what have platforms done and what are they doing now to be the most attractive place to develop apps? Right. They want to be a most, the most attractive uh, place to develop apps and, and they have, have competed with each other from the very, very beginning. You know, in the, in the first few app store, there was only paid and free. There was no in-app purchase. Then that was introduced on one side, the other uh, Im implemented it uh, uh, as well a few months later. When subscriptions were released, they were released on the other platform as well. Um, now we have the small business program, you know, where small companies can have a much lower rate. Google responded with the same uh, or a very similar program. Um, in addition to like the business side of that, uh, app stores really compete to to say, well, we're going to promote your apps. We're going to, you know, make your apps stand out. Stand out. If you create something really creative and innovative, we're going to show our users how, you know, the phone that you are using or the tablet that you're using is so much more useful with this app. The uh, app, there's an app for that campaign was a perfect example of that. But also, for example, the app store curation that we have today, where a specific team of people are focused on finding great apps for a particular purpose and highlighting those apps. Those are the kinds of things that as a developer you pay attention to when you're trying to decide which which apps um, you or, or platforms you're going to develop for. Um, the platforms also really invest in developer tools and, and new APIs to make it really easy to develop, to develop new apps that take advantage of all the new capabilities that these phones have, whether it's, you know, location or gyroscope or health tracking or financial uh, services, all those different things have APIs that app, app makers can use to then turn, you know, a technology into a solution and something that is useful and changes people's lives. So with all the shiny changes, uh, platforms um, put in place, how does one choose? And what are the features that are offered to developers put in a pro con list when making a choice? I mean, both are specific to each platform, but generally speaking, the benefits of hosting your product uh, on online marketplace. Right. Well, if you have unlimited resources, you want to be everywhere, right? You don't want to choose which platform you're going to develop for. And you're going to be on iOS and on Android and in the Kindle store. And maybe if it makes sense for your app, you might be on uh, smart TVs and you might be on other devices and wearables and you're just going to be everywhere. Um, most app makers do need to uh, choose more carefully and have limited resources. And where you're going to be really depends on your app. You know, are you targeting business users or consumers? Or do people first go to the web to find what your app, what your app has to offer? Or uh, do they think of it as an app first? For example, a, a service like um, Airbnb or VRBO, they might really, um, you know, make the web the, the central part of their experience because that's where people go to find uh, a rental, but then over time, you know, their app might be used for checking in and, and for the owner to manage 
the interaction with uh, the renter and and the app might become more prominent. Um, in my case, I make a meditation app for kids. I have my content available on the web and I also have it available um, in, in an app. So a lot of companies have different platforms or venues where they make interaction with either their app or their organization available to customers. And you want to meet people where they're at. Um, also, you know, if you are developing, for example, a game, you could use a development tool like Unity that makes it very easy to create one single set of code and then publish that same game on Android and iOS and even on some of the game consoles. So it's really a matter of priority and meeting your users, working with the resources that you have, the knowledge of your developers and, and where you want to be. Absolutely. I think one of the really interesting things also about sort of the last year is watching sort of the way that platforms have allowed for um, small businesses, especially to like adapt uh, during this time and to really change both what they're doing, but also solve some unique problems that the last year has really presented. Um, and I think that without sort of the changes over the last 13 years that have been made to app stores uh, and the competition that is then like fueled from that, um, you know, I don't know that we would have been able to meet the needs of, of our users and people and, you know, health demands and all of those things. So I think it's such an interesting facet of all of this and is really going to apply to continued history uh, here. So thank you, Mike, so much for, for really providing your perspective um, in how, you know, so far we've seen platforms driving this this growth in the app economy. You know, it's been so interesting to walk through all those changes that have happened over the last 13 years. Um, and, you know, I think it's only, you know, the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, on, on how much is still to come. Um, so for more information on app stores and the app economy at large, we just compiled a full timeline of the evolution of the two largest app stores um, that you'll be able to find in our show notes. Um, so, Mike, thank you so much again for, for joining us. It's always a pleasure, Alex. And now it is time for Random Identifier. Anna, you are up first. Okay, so today my Random Identifier is a book. It's called A Beautifully Foolish Endeavor by Hank Green, which, Ooh. fun fact, brother of John Green, also an author. Um, and it's part of a series, and the series is called The Carls. Um, the first book is an absolutely remarkable thing. Both are science fiction books, which is not usually my jam, but I really <laughs> like this. Um, and without giving too much away, it's basically about this woman who unexpectedly comes into contact with aliens and then kind of overnight becomes a celebrity because she came into contact with aliens. Whoa. So this sounds like every other sci-fi book, but this one was really very entertaining, a wild ride of a story. Um, it wasn't necessarily the escapist read I was looking for because it also <laughs> touches on like a lot of current issues like I don't know economic inequality climate change surveillance and how technology is changing our lives but at least aliens aren't trying to take over the planet as far as we know <laughs> um, but highly, as far as highly, we know <laughs> highly recommend this book um, I loved every page and I also loved the first one so overall a great series um, the Carls by Hank Green. 
That's awesome. Uh, he and John Green used to do like a YouTube show yes, where they would they like comment yeah. on sports, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're very was, funny together. They're great, very funny. Great sibling dynamic. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> um, Morgan, what do you have for us? So my random identifier is a bit of a recurring issue uh, in Brussels. I'm happy to uh, happy to have a platform to talk about it. So um, a, a long time ago, there was this decision that was made to renovate the Justice Palace uh, in Brussels. Oh this, is, this is for you, Anna. <laughs> and so it's um, it's a hu- I don't know. It's, it's a huge building. It's probably I think it's the largest in the world. Uh, Justice oh, wow. Palace, I mean. And uh, of course, that was never completed. So the scaffoldings are still in place since then. That's we're talking 1984 so they were so old um, that they put actually in place new scaffolds to hold the old ones Um, and so (laughs) so there's a double layer there and um, so just recently this month uh, the Belgian federal government just uh, put in place um, uh, just put aside 1.5 million euros to renovate the scaffolds. So we're making a lot of progress and uh, I'm really happy about it. And um, they wanted to use the post-COVID EU recovery cash to do that, but um, that didn't go through. So yeah, yeah I thought that was a pretty so funny story. <laughs> that it is. That, that's a long time to have scaffolding. I love, I love the, uh, yeah, I love repairing scaffolding. That's, yeah. that's something, that sounds like something they would do uh in new york city specifically so i appreciate the connection there yeah we're not even touching the 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 building yet we're still at the scaffolding level but yeah right i don't think i've ever seen the actual like justice palace (laughs) because it's always covered yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) oh my gosh (laughs) um well uh mine is also of the science fiction uh general uh umbrella specifically that um a new movie was released during this time which is um <laughs> like a godzilla versus king kong movie <laughs> um and i really love this is well documented on on the podcast um but i really love sort of like very silly action style movies like this um and so i decided that instead of just watching the new one i was going to go back and watch sort of this whole like revamp of the Godzilla and King Kong stories. So, so far I've, I've watched the sort of original Godzilla movie from the 2000s, not like original, original, although I've seen that one too. And it's great. But anyway, from the 2000s, watched Godzilla. Then I watched King Kong Skull Island. So next is Godzilla King of Monsters. Um, and then I will finally get to the new feature. Um, but other folks at, um, the app association have watched it. Um, and some of their kids have watched it and, really have enjoyed their experiences. So I'm looking forward to it. It is exactly the kind of content I've been looking for. Um, it, uh, they may think that it's applicable to life, but it's not, um, which is why I love it so much. <laughs> um, it has been a delight to watch and the perfect sort of way to get out of my own head for about two hours. It's really, really delightful uh, and would recommend to everyone. <laughs> I'm ashamed to say I never watched um, any of these, so I might have to I get don't started. Think I have either. Yeah. It's it's like <laughs> I I've I I would encourage you to watch them, but like only if you enjoy sort of like a weird cross between sort of like monster movies, but also like disaster movies. Mm. Um, 
but they're like really silly. It's like you're you're not watching it for you know like prime dialogue or acting. Although there's shockingly <laughs> excellent actors in all of these movies, like Academy Award winning actors in all of them. Um, and I wonder what it's like to be an Academy Award winning actor and then like be in that movie and be like, I'm here for fun. I am here to travel somewhere cool. Um, <laughs> like you got to imagine that's why they're there. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. They should have some fun. On top I agree. of all that award-winning acting. Exactly. Sometimes you just gotta, like, act against uh, what I imagine is some sort of strange, very large tennis ball that one day will become King Kong in a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alright, we have reached the end of Greetings from Brussels, episode 11 of our Global Tech Small podcast. If you're interested in learning more, visit our website at actonline.org slash techswamp. You'll find all of our episodes and show notes that include links to articles, blogs, and all you can also subscribe to TechSwamp on Apple Podcasts, um, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Stitcher to get all the latest episodes first. And don't forget to rate and review. And to follow what we're doing on a daily basis, follow us on Twitter at EU Appmakers. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye. Bye.